Continued interviews from Studio HFL are made possible through the support of Messina Covers, Eastman Music Company, Pickett Blackburn, S.E. Shires, and through the generosity of Patreon subscribers. Trumpet players can be kind of picky when it comes to cases, perhaps even more so than other brass instrumentalists. If you have an idea for a custom case, then Messina Covers has your solution for completely custom case designs, even down to crazy color schemes. Let's not forget about options for mouthpiece pouches, or pretty much anything you'd want to keep protected in a custom case. Check them out at MessinaCovers.net. If you're looking for excellence in trumpets, trombones, horns, and tubas, you need look no further than the Eastman Music Company and S.E. Shires. Eastman offers a complete line of brass instruments, from the beginner all the way up to the professional. And you know they're invested in creating a quality product when the legendary Doc Severinsen helped design Eastman's beginner trumpet model. You can find more information about the Eastman Music Company at EastmanWinds.com and you can learn more about the S.E. Shires line of instruments at SEShires.com. Pickett Blackburn has established themselves as a top-tier resource for trumpet players. If you haven't had a chance to try any mouthpieces available through Pickett, you can check them out online at picketblackburn.com. And on the Blackburn side of Pickett Blackburn, it would be worth your while to check out their incredible line of trumpets endorsed by such great musicians as Vince DiMartino. Be sure to check them out at picketblackburn.com, and that's Pickett with two T's. And before today's interview, just a reminder that you too can be a financial supporter for this podcast by subscribing at patreon.com slash studiohfl. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash studiohfl. There are four tiers of support, and you can choose the one that best fits your budget. Your support will help offset the cost of production for this podcast and would be greatly appreciated please consider becoming a subscriber at patreon.com slash studiohfl. And now, on to today's interview with your host, Larry Powell. David Bilger, it's a pleasure to have you on my show, Studio HFL. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And thank goodness I got the name. I, I say that because I hesitated one time thinking, wait a minute, who am I talking to? Oh, that's funny. And it was a little embarrassing. Thankfully, we were already friends. So, oh, you know, so I think so it, it, he yeah, let no, it slip. No it. issue there. I tell you, I, I sound like I'm stalking when I say I followed you on Facebook for a long time. That but... does sound like stalking, <laughs> but it's okay. <laughs> well, let's just say I've known who you are. I'm, I'm a full-time trumpet player, and uh, it's hard to avoid names like yours and Chris Martin and Michael Sachs. And we just... You're talking about all my friends here. <laughs> yeah, and one of them, Jim Stevenson, I talked to yesterday. Oh, and, cool. uh he, actually, your name came up. I said, talking to him tomorrow. So okay. it was all good. Actually, we were talking about the Song of Hope recording. Yeah. And it's probably a good place to start is just how grief-stricken the trumpet world is oh, it's right just, now. It's the saddest thing. I heard from Ryan about 10 days before he passed and mm. traded a couple emails recently, actually about the new the Song of Hope that's coming out. Yeah. Um, the world band, that one? Yeah, the world band thing. And uh, he told me that it was in Ryan fashion. Oh, the doctors say that this might be it, but of course there's this possible treatment and this is possible and I'm still holding out. I'm going to try this and try that. But just so I was prepped for it when I got the news. It's just it's so sad because he always represented that hope and it felt like a little bit of hope died along with him that day. 
And God knows we need hope right now. <laughs> yeah, he had become so integral to our lives, not just as a musician, but as that you, he shows up on Facebook again and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he has the strength to post again or to right. play years, again. Years he was he was like doing a, doing a chemo treatment and then going and playing a concert with the, with Dallas Symphony that night. How do you do that? The strength and the the emotional fortitude that he showed for eight years. That's just what they gave him a year to live eight years ago. So he beat he beat the odds a long <laughs> ways, but we're gonna miss him in a lot of ways. Absolutely. And I feel for... Mostly his spirit. And I'm at a loss for words because it's still really fresh. But I don't think that hope is going to die along with him. I think what he's done with his foundation in Cancer Blows is created something that we can all still latch on to. And there are still others, like Wayne Bergeron now, undergoing chemo. And... It's a way to keep galvanizing the trumpet world and, and moving forward. Uh, exactly. I had the opportunity to, to do an interview with Ryan for the ITG um, journal. I have a column. I call it my worst worst gig I ever took. Because it's, <laughs> and I, I have to pay to be a member of ITG, so that's oh, yeah. <laughs> to do my column. But I just, it was maybe a year ago, I did this interview with him, and every time, I read it a lot to, to new students, especially the last couple of paragraphs, and I cry every time. It's just yeah. his point of view and the way he kept perspective that the trumpet's important, but it's not who we are. And that really helps, and it also helps on a nuts and bolts way for you to yeah. play well every night to realize that it doesn't define us, it's just something we love to do. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. So I remember waking up a couple of days in a row after he had passed, thinking, I, I have to make the most of today. I get the opportunity to make the most of today because others are not waking up. Yeah. So it's he's reached so many people. And what a legacy. Wouldn't you like to be able to leave that kind of legacy? In a different, leaving in a different way. Well, yes, but to, to no, say I, that I, you had oh, that kind oh, of oh, impact. Aside, he became so much bigger than himself and bigger mm -hmm. than the trumpet and bigger than all the groups he, he's played with. He, he, yeah, he reached, yeah. he reached a lot of people and will continue to do. Yeah. This is going to be a hard left turn. We're going to, we're going to get back to <laughs> talking to you and about you today. Let's just start with what's going on in your life right now. How are you managing the pandemic? <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the pandemic is a test in a lot of ways. I can't fathom not playing concerts. It's, uh, it's just, it's sort of ridiculous. In the fall, I actually had a reconstruction of my right shoulder oh. and was out of the orchestra for a while. Mm -hmm. And then my wife and I had a daughter and so I was just starting paternity leave, and then we shut down. So I, I hardly played with the orchestra this year. Oh, wow. And it feels really, really, that felt strange in and of itself. But then mm -hmm. now, not knowing, hopefully we'll be back doing smaller group stuff. But sitting down here and doing band and, you know, musician in a box videos, recording little snippets here and there. Some of that's been a little bit fun, but it's not the same as playing live with the folks. We did a really hilarious video with Steve Martin. Last I checked, it had 800,000 views. Wait, like Steve Martin, the jerk? Yeah, he, was, he plays banjo. Yeah. Oh, I know. He's fantastic. Yeah, yeah and, and he had done a thing with the orchestra. He came and did our Academy Ball fundraiser, I don't know, five years ago or something. Yeah. 
And, and our, our vice president of artistic planning just reached out to him because he was posting videos of himself playing banjo on Instagram and said, do you want a backup band? Because we can put one together for you. <laughs> so we got about 20 folks and Carol Yanch, our tuba player, did the charts. And Jason Depew, one of our violinists, is also a great bluegrass musician. Mm -hmm. And Don Liutzer, a timpanist, is also into bluegrass. And the two of them worked on rhythm tracks and backup tracks. And then we recorded some horn licks and, you know. Never would have done that without the pandemic. And then just recording some, um, some solo stuff, just unaccompanied stuff in my basement, which has been really a weird process, going from playing the trumpet to being like, oh, I'm cinematographer and director, but now I know how to use Premiere Pro and Audition so I can make myself sound halfway decent. And, and so that's, that's weird. Teaching was, was quite a right turn, going from all the live stuff to having to be online, but I've realized that as Zoom has become more stable and we all get our external mics and better setups, yeah. that week after week it got easier to manage. Mm -hmm. And I just finished five weeks of a virtual trumpet camp, mm. which kept me on Zoom 20 hours a week in my basement. Wow. <laughs> but wow. it was great to meet a bunch of new students and to, to actually uh, reconnect with a few folks that I haven't seen in a long time who came back mm -hmm. to get uh, a few more ideas on their playing. and. And that was really heartening to see, especially the younger folk who are approaching this with such sense of, of determination and resilience. And uh, so it's been a mixed bag <laughs> for the trumpet. It's been great So because I, I have my new best friend here on my music stand. I've been going through the whole oh. album book because uh, <laughs> usually working up concerts and doing all sorts of other stuff, it just ends up being you do your basics work, but you can't do great. deep dives into I'm going to try to strip the barnacles off of every bit of my technique and come back from this a different and a better player. Mm -hmm. And so that's my goal right now musically is I'm just flogging through <laughs> the stuff I played when I was 14. Yeah, yeah. It's incredibly humbling, especially if you do all the stuff that's written in the book, especially like the, the upper tempos on some of that stuff. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, I think in Vizzuti's version, he took all the tempos out. Yeah, uh, at least on the the characteristic studies, and I'm thinking, wait a second, I was held to playing number one at 96 to the quarter note, so I everybody else <laughs> has to do that too. Well, but it is better to practice that stuff slower first. You know, it's what I tell my students, and I'm finding myself going, hey, come on, do do this. And then I've been doing the Bousquet Etude book because I, mm. I take all my freshman students or a lot of them through that, and uh, I figured I'd torture myself the way. I <laughs> so it's been really fun revisiting a lot of that stuff and having the time to do it but mm -hmm. it's a challenge i miss the playing i miss sure. the people and i miss the travel because most summers are i like to do mike Sachs's festival in colorado up in mm -hmm. um, steamboat springs and which is always a blast and then the orchestra always goes to to vail so i usually get to spend a few weeks of my summer in colorado mm -hmm. and I, I know this sounds like incredible privilege to complain about missing my Colorado time, but it's such a highlight of the year every year. Just taking the family out and getting bikes from get a bike for my son and go and sure. get friends out there. It's, it's pandemic is a it's a trial, but it's also a gift in a certain way. And that's what I keep telling my students: you have the gift of pandemic. You, <laughs> you don't have to play in ensembles right now, so you can right. do deep digs into everything you need to fix, and we're working through it. And, the other thing I'm doing this summer is um, giving a lot of extra lessons for free to my current students just to keep mm -hmm. them on board because they were all going to like cool festivals and now they're all yeah. 
Yeah, I had a couple go into drum course, and of course they were they're missing out on that, which I'm kind of mixed on that, anyways. But yeah, but they yes. come back strong. <laughs> yes, but right, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Normally, I use the summers, anyways. I'll I buy method books or etude books. Mm -hmm. I'll use the summer to finally sit down and read through those. Mm -hmm. Summer is usually my sight reading time. Let's oh. learn something and work through it. And I'm doing a little bit of that this summer, but. I'm making the most of it by trying to get as many interviews while everybody's uh, available. Yeah, yeah but nobody said no. No, not yet. Right. Yeah, because not yet. we're all here. Let's share. Yeah. And when we're finally able to be out and together again, it's going to be, it's going to feel great. And I mm. think people are going to appreciate each other in a new way. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, it's, you said something about the pandemic a second ago, and I think I wanted to throw in there, it's a great equalizer because it puts us all in that same position. We're all now suddenly stripped of a lot of things that we, nobody can do anything normal. So you've had plenty of motivation to keep the horn up. If you've been doing a virtual camp, that's Yeah, I wanted that's to, something to be to, able to sound decent demonstrating stuff. So, sure. So I was usually down here in, the, in my basement early in the morning doing a full session before I started sort of teaching. And mm -hmm. It's been good to get in, in and keep in a groove because it would have been easy to go, see, when's my next concert? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Conrad Jones. I don't know if Conrad. Oh, yeah. Conrad's uh, an amazing young player. He's terrific. And one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. He's he great. He was actually supposed to come and do some subbing during my paternity leave, but those concerts got canceled. He was supposed to be yeah. joining us last April to do some concerts. So well, they were in rehearsals. They were in rehearsals for Mahler 5 the week he shut down. Think about that as a trumpet player. It's finally getting, you know, to play Mahler 5 or some Shostakovich or, or... I know. And all of a sudden, boom. And India, unfortunately, is currently the only major orchestra that's taken medical away. A lot of places are furloughed, but they don't even... They're having to, you know, buy medical insurance. Matters so much to Conrad because he's young and healthy. But <laughs> yes. <laughs> no. But just on the principle of things, and that orchestra's got an endowment they could have dipped into. So. Well, I mean, I don't pretend to know their fiscal stat, stat, status. Those the business guys. Fortunately, we have some great ones in Philadelphia, so they're they're. I have such great trust in our management team. They're they're. We're in a lot better shape than a lot of other places, which is good. But it makes me feel bad for somebody like Conrad, who is just such a such an amazing guy and a fine player to find himself on that end of it. But yeah. a lot of people in this country are hurting really badly. So I yeah. feel lucky stars every day. Yeah. I have my coffee. I'm good. <laughs> you have your coffee. And I have something over here. I promise it's not alcoholic, but <laughs> it's only way. Yeah. Between you and your cup. <laughs> yeah. Boy, I feel like another hard left turn. It's It seems like it would be easy to get down these days, but I think a lot of people are finding ways to stay and I think if we stay engaged, even if it's online lessons or doing a camp, doing stuff like this, it's we have to have something to look forward to each day otherwise. Well, well, and also, for instance, we're doing regular Zoom classes with our incoming freshmen at Northwestern. We've got a big class coming in, six new students. Mm -hmm. Our trumpet teaching team there, which is Tom Rolfs and Mike Sachs and me and Jenny Gilbert, we're going through and, and making sure to establish these connections with these young folks because... Mm -hmm especially with the question about whether we'll be live or distanced, probably distanced. In the fall, trying to create community for people is so important because we are 
we're, we're humans. We need each other in amazing ways. And, and being cut off in that way or not having those experiences makes it all the more important to create those. And thank goodness for Zoom and FaceTime and all the other platforms. I'm just saying the ones I use. I'm sure there's other. Yeah. But it's been really important and interesting to keep keep these lines of communication open or start new ones. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about uh, your orchestra, how long you've been there. and uh, the, big, the biggest disappointment was I was supposed to get my 25-year watch in June. <laughs> so yeah, it's been a quarter century. So they actually, they gave me the watch. It hasn't been engraved yet, but they, they usually do a ceremony and, mm-hmm. and such, and we weren't able to do that, obviously. So I've been here an awfully long time. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. That's terrific. In that time, how many music directors have you had come and go? It's not very many. My first nine years were Wolfgang Savalish, who is the one who hired me. And I still miss him because he was the, just this incredible musician. He, he could, when you did core rep with him, like when you were doing Dvorak and Brahms and Beethoven and up through Strauss, we always joked, he must have known all those guys. <laughs> but just the way that he could understand the architecture of those pieces and bring it out was just, it's very old school. And he conducted in a box. There wasn't a lot of this kind of stuff. It was all very, he had arthritis. He was old. So it was mm-hmm. small, but you could really tell what was going on. And um, his mind was just so steeped in the tradition. That was mm-hmm. cool. Mm-hmm. After he left was Christoph Eschenbach, five years. And then after that, we took a break from music directors. We just had, we had Charles Dutrois as a principal conductor. He wasn't given the title of music director, so he didn't do hiring and firing. Mm-hmm. We were engaged in the big search. Mm-hmm. So he was the music director. And I know he's he's been canceled because of his Me Too stuff, which is abhorrent. But putting that aside for a moment, if you're just looking at him as a musician, it was really fun working with sure. him. Sure. Not saying he didn't get what he deserved. I miss the music making with him. Yeah. Now we have Yannick Nisace again. So mm-hmm. it's been four, four principal conductors, three music directors, and one almost. <laughs> yeah, and one almost. Do you know Chappie Perry? No. Marvin Perry? He yeah. was principal for, he was with Indiana, Indianapolis Symphony for 43 years. Okay. Uh, principal for 41. And uh, when Conrad got there, Chappie moved down to third trumpet. Oh, wow. And uh, I sat between them for a couple of concerts. And uh, it's a great vibe. Chappie was just like the most relaxed I had ever seen it on third trumpet. Yeah, just... <laughs> Every position has its has its its challenges, right? Yeah, yeah. But, so, but um, it... some days I look and say, might be better to be second this week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was one of those things where I, I knew he always took playing principal trumpet seriously. But I never realized it until I saw him in another position that he now felt he didn't have that weight on his shoulders. Yeah, And he was always a very calm, cool person. But it was neat to see him lighten up a little bit. Yeah, be able to kick back a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? I do remember, he may get mad at me for telling this, but when they were in search for a music director, I was, I think I was assisting uh, the week that I was there. And he goes, yeah, I don't want a young conductor. I, I, it'll take too long for me to train him. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to break him in. <laughs> but then yeah. they got one, right? Yeah, yeah, Christopher Vansky. <laughs> and now I, I think he his... was like 20-something when he got right. the job. Yeah. But I, I thought that was funny that he thought uh, 
He, Chappie didn't want to take the time to train a new conductor, I thought. There you go. Because trumpet players, we have this mentality that we're in charge, you know, that we drive the bus. Oh, I don't, <laughs> I don't believe that for a second. <laughs> yeah. Really? You can ride over the top a little bit, but yeah, you're always answering to somebody. Have you always been in a principal position? I freelance for a while, so then you play anything and everything. Sure. Yeah. Sure. My first job was, was a one-year pr physician principal in Oakland. And then when I joined the Dallas Symphony, I came in as co-principal. Rick John Julio was principal trumpet. Rick was is is an amazing guy, and at the you know was a really amazing player. And I learned a lot from him and from the other guys in the section. And then after a few years, just like you're talking about with in Indy, Rick decided to move down, and we traded positions. Mm -hmm. And you could see a little of the weight come off of his shoulders there, mm -hmm. and he got to work uh, a lot more. He's he's also a good conductor. He conducts mm -hmm. the Greater Dallas Youth Orchestra, so he did more of that, and then got the mute business going, and and then from Dallas it was Philly. So yeah, yeah, mostly principal parts. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, when I was co-principal, sometimes uh, if there were four parts, I'd play in the section. Sure. At the time I was playing the smaller piece first on the smaller pieces. Mm -hmm. I, I love playing principal, but I think it's a challenge to play anywhere. Oh, you know, and like I said, all of those parts have their challenges for sure. Yeah, and I think second trumpet might be the hardest job. Oh, come on, it's easy, super easy. I say that, but I'm thinking. <laughs> <Just joking. laughs> oh yeah, okay, okay. Sorry, it took me a second on that. No, no, you have to put up with the idiosyncrasies of the first player, and then yeah. sometimes what for the you're having to watch the conductor, but the first player might be putting stuff in a different place than what you're seeing, and you have to meld all of that together and, yeah. and then tune and then maybe you don't like how the first player is playing it but you have to pretend you do and just right. you know, go for it so, yeah i had a, a long time second in uh, one of my regional orchestras and i talked to him i said mark you learned how to play out of tune with me you learned how to rush with me all those things you're just talking about and he laughed at it but he goes yeah but he, he said my job was to make you sound good and then in our in the bigger orchestras when you've got a principal and an associate You've got to have you're playing with two different principles, right? Often by half on a program. You have to, oh, this guy likes to do that, and this guy does that, and just flipping switches. So, thinking back to what first drew you to our orchestral playing, who lit your fire for that? Who were you listening to? I grew up in Milwaukee, and I, I had like the most amazing teaching when I was young. And the person who really exposed me to orchestral playing is Dennis Najum. Then. He's retired now, but he's still he's playing Dixieland mostly, and mm -hmm. he'll have a lot of stories for you. <laughs> but I would go into lessons, and, and he taught a lot about basics as well. But then when we would study an orchestral piece, he would take out the, now this is dating it now, the, the LPs of various <laughs> players working on the opening of Mahler 5. He'd play four different ones, and we'd talk about what's different and what different players brought to it and open this the eyes to the fact that, first of all, there's no one way to do it. There's no mm -hmm. right and wrong. There's just different. And I, I, that actually really helps working with conductors because they all have different takes on the music. And mm -hmm. you end up knowing what you like and what you don't, but none of them are particularly wrong. But it also showed me what flexibility there is and what outwardly might seem like a rather inflexible art form. Mm -hmm. And so it really opened up that idea of having room for personality in playing and then 10 times a year the Chicago Symphony came up to Milwaukee mm. back in the day mm -hmm. and the youth orchestra I was playing in 
had rehearsals up till 9 p.m. in a building attached to the concert hall. Mm. So we would finish, and I would sneak into the hall and listen to the second halves. And I, there was a lighting booth up on the mm-hmm. side, and I, I knew how to get back in there, and I, I got to listen to Herseth play live a lot. And wow. Was, wow. In, in a lot of ways, we're all descendants from his, of him. American brass playing is, is it's Chickowitz Jacobs and Herseth. But for exactly. players, for first players, it's hearing what he brought and how he could dominate the moment <laughs> was really tastefully yes but still like how, mm-hmm. when he brought it oh my gosh first of all the color he turned was so red it was so cool <laughs> and then but that sound in the room was just like oh mm-hmm. my gosh <laughs> it was you know that doesn't get you going i don't know what, what else would have yeah been. yeah getting to hear getting to her here a person live was yeah mm-hmm. was so who was in the section during that time in Chicago? Yeah, you said you heard Herseth, but who was next um, to him through there? It was, I'm trying to think. It was just right around the time that Vosberg was coming in. Yeah, it's it, all these opportunities to hear people live and think, I'm an indie. I live so close to Chicago, yet I never took the opportunity to get up there. And then it was too late. Well, you're busy gigging. Yes, but and I think that's not an excuse, you know, and Bob Sullivan down in Cincinnati. It's, I could get down there, but there's no excuse. I should still take the opportunity to hear great yeah, but players. There's a lot of reasons. They might not be excuses, but they're reasons. Yeah. It's pretty funny. One of the weeks of my summer camp, I had a guy from the Navy band who took the really good player. And he said, I've wanted to come up and take a lesson with you. <laughs> and D.C. to Philly, uh, it's three hours in the car. Right. But because of the pandemic and him not being at work, he was able to to do do the virtual stuff. There's a lot of reasons why it's difficult to to get places. It's hard. And how many working musicians actually go to a lot of concerts? Yeah, fair question. Yeah, I would think not many. Yeah, and, and by that same token, how many actually listen, put on an orchestral CD, in in their off time? You know, I mean, not I'm not talking about not when you're a, studying yeah, a piece, I but I listen to solo stuff just. Because so much interesting stuff is coming out right yeah. now. Just amazing yeah. recordings by people. But not a lot of going to orchestra. I can tell you the last orchestra concert I went to was Chicago Symphony. Mm. Heard Chris, well, it was Chris, Chris was playing, mm-hmm. and it was pictures. And uh, it was opening night. Yeah. Three or four, it was his last year in the orchestra there. Might have been it, five years ago by now. Yeah. The last yeah. time I went to a, a, an orchestra concert that wasn't my own. Uh, you mentioned uh, Dennis Najum. Was he a formal teacher? At that time? Yeah, I, he was playing associate in, in Milwaukee Symphony. And then I studied with him for four, four years in high school. Mm-hmm. Was he a Chickowitz product or from no, another school? Um, he, was, he was from, he went to Hart back in the day. Mm-hmm. And so he was an East Coast guy, a really colorful player, a mm-hmm. really beautiful player, but a lot of foundation. We my early teacher was a show guy who was a middle school band director by day and then played mm-hmm. all the traveling Broadway shows that came through Milwaukee. He was, he was a busy player, really fine mm-hmm. player. But mm-hmm. all we did every Saturday morning was Arbenz. It was one book. Yeah. And nothing gets you in a better place as a kid than doing that. I mean, we yeah. would play Arbenz for 25 minutes and then a duet for the last five minutes of the lesson, and that was the half mm-hmm. hour every Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. And so when I got to Dennis, I could get around the horn pretty well. And then first lesson, he took out the 
Max Patek preparatory melodies for the French horn, which is like half notes, quarter notes, getchel. And we worked on, right, making sure everything's right. He was always busting on me for dotted A 16th being exactly subdivided because mm-hmm. you know, I was a kid. They're like a little bit loose and just really thinking about rhythm, pitch, production. He was really methodical, really great teacher. Mm-hmm. You say East Coast. A lot of times you know, talk to somebody and, oh, I was an Adam student. I went Chickowitz or Jacobs. Do you classify yourself as oh, a... I'm, not, I'm, I'm a mutt. You're a mutt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I then... Never, I, didn't, I never studied with anybody who was, who was a Chicago-trained player. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't stop me from playing Chickowitz flow studies all the time. Yeah. But I also yeah. do Stamp and I also do Caruso. It's some of each. You know? Sure. I studied in college with Dave Hickman, who he was not a Chickowitz yeah. player. And then I did a master's at Juilliard with Mark Gould, who mm-hmm. went to Boston University. And, and he's that was his Boston and New York were his places. So again, not a Chickowitz. Yeah. Was he as crazy then as he seems to be now? Oh, actually, more so. <laughs> really? That <laughs> yeah, was great. It was great. Yeah. I, my first lesson with him, he, he, he was like, oh, you played pretty good for some like Lutheran boy from the Midwest, but you're in New York now and you got to learn to play. I'm like, I had no idea what he was talking about. Like, yes, sir, Mr. Gould. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, he knows how to push people's buttons and motivate in really unique ways, which is why mm-hmm. he's a guru. He's, a, he's He takes risks in his mm-hmm. music making. He takes risks in life, mm-hmm. which is why he busted his back in a paragliding accident. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, in in Switzerland or something. Oh, my gosh. Hard landing. Boom. Just busted up. And he's fine now. But, you know, that was 10, 15 years ago. But it's important to actually experience that kind of freedom, I think. Mm -hmm. You need to understand performance practice, but also you have to have a voice or what's the reason for doing what we do. I want to go back to the Arbonne for a second. Yeah. Uh, I've never asked anybody else this question, and I don't know why. Have you played all 150 Art of phrasing? No. Tunes? No. I'm not that far in the book right now. <laughs> I, I, but I wonder who has. I know there's still uh, a handful. They're great to play a few now and again, and they're really great for teaching high school players how to start to transpose because they're melodic and you can just, you know, say play this and on C trumpet and B flat. And they're readable and they're, they are what they are. I, I, you know, I like the Bordoni book. And Rochu and that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. The Bordoni, what's the moving trans? That's the one with the moving transposition. Yeah, that Poré was right. the um, editor. Yeah, it changes transposition every eight bars. My fa- yeah. It's my favorite book of all. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. The new conclusion that you only need two books, and it's Arben book and then Mike Sachs's excerpt book. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> the two. So. Wait, you're not getting kickbacks uh, from uh, Mike's from book, Arben. are you? <laughs> <laughs> not from Arben. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. No, Mike's book is, I had a student the other day and they were playing a misprint in an excerpt and I went, what book is that? And they, they told me, I went, no, you got to get this one. And then I held yeah. up Mike's picture. Yeah. Although I always joke, I wish his picture yeah. wasn't in the front. It's a little scary. <laughs> a little scary. Yeah. Mike and hey. I played Nebraska Quintet together at Juilliard. Really? Yeah. We've known each other since school. Well, I could tell you some story now. <laughs> Not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Are you guys the same age? Pretty close, I would guess. Yeah, he's, I think, like three quarters of a year older. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why the hair is gone for him. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to touch that one. I won't bring that one up. I will say, on my stand here, you're talking about the Arben 
and uh, what's the other one you just mentioned? Mike's book. Yeah. Phil Snedeker has written some really cool things. Oh, the low etudes are great. Things. Yeah. The lyrical etudes yep. and the, the orchestral book. Listen. I'm joking because there's a lot of great materials out there. Bousquet, Longinati, Charlier. Mm. How can you leave Charlier book out? Yeah. Biche book. Yeah. Etudes for just as far as etude books yeah. go. And then there's flexibility books. And then there's, yeah. you know, I love Tony Plogue's Finger Busters, those patterns. Oh. Yeah. Like, they make you just want to, like, throw the trumpet out the window, which is right. a good thing about practicing in a basement because there are no windows. I yeah. But, I mean, there's a lot of great materials, but the joke about Arvin is it's just back to the most ba basics, I think, can help us all. Yeah. And I remember Venny DiMartino writing in my Arvin, he said, you can alter this, like in the flexibility section, instead of just die, I, 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 but da, 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 and it's, if you say, oh, the Arvin's doesn't go up to the high range, it doesn't address this, that, or the well, other. it does can, if, you, if you transpose it up. If, exactly. I mean, and, and it's the basis for a lot of great exercises, and you can still yeah. get, a, get everything you need out of there. Yeah, it's wonderful in that way. Well, here we are in the middle of today's interview. Just a reminder that support for this podcast comes from Messina Covers, who has you covered, literally, for all of your custom case needs. The Eastman Music Company, providing excellence from the professional model to the beginner model. And of course, Pickett Blackburn, providing you with a multitude of options for mouthpieces and trumpets. Now, back to the interview. So you mentioned listening to soloists a little bit ago. Who, who do you like to listen to? Oh, wow. Right now I'm on a kick with watching the videos and listening to the new Matthias Hoofs oh. CD because it's just ridiculous. It's yeah. I don't know if you also caught that that orchestral excerpt mashup video that he did where he plays no. six different trumpets at once. You got to search this because okay, okay. He put it up maybe two months. It was like early pandemic, and it it should have just shut everybody else down because right. it was like so. It was a great, it was amazing performance and great arrangement, and he just mm -hmm. it was like all these excerpts flying around each other. Oh. And, uh, it was, but I love his playing. Yeah. Um, because he can do anything on the trumpet, and it looks so easy. Yeah. What do you think of Hokan's Charlier videos? I'm hoping we don't get all the way to 36. <laughs> I, I hope we do, because I'm thinking, I want, an, I want an idea of what some of those are really know, supposed to sound like. I know, but if he's only, like. only doing it while we're in pandemic, I don't want to go that long. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. Yeah. It's one guy's take, and, and it's great to hear what he brings. Because, you know, he's, like, ridiculous. Yeah. As far yeah. as... Ability on the instrument and vision, he does it all. That's one of the reasons he's he's so sought after. My other guy that's outside the box is a guy that is not a household name, Yarun Berwertz. He posted some videos during the pandemic. I didn't know about Yarun until we did uh, some recitals together for Yamaha. And I'm like, oh, man. Uh, he was principal trumpet in, I think it was NDR before they changed their name to the Elba Philharmonie. Mm -hmm. And he quit that job at like age 30 to be a soloist. Mm. So he's out there just being a soloist right now. And he's busy in Europe. Mm -hmm. The playing is, is stunning. It's really pretty. What? There's a new video he put up of it's uh, It starts with one of the, uh, the book. What is that? Oh, that's the Rimsky-Korsakov. Is it uh, oh, door? No, it's a etude book. Oh, the Brandt. Brandt. Brandt, sorry. Right. Yeah, yeah. Brandt. 30 and then morphs it into a Brahms song at the end and the Brandt is just it's just so artistic and so mm -hmm. cornetti even though he's playing on trumpet I just mm -hmm. it's awesome but yeah Hokan is great and and Allison Balsam is uh, I really like listening to what she does she did a couple of 
classes for us at Curtis when she was coming through Philly and mm -hmm. was very generous with her time and really wonderful with her comments with the kids and mm -hmm. you know. I was thrilled when she and Tina came onto the scene because I had females in my trumpet studio mm -hmm. and it's you can keep pointing them to all the old white guys and now all of a sudden I think Allison was the first one out and her playing was just no, through the roof. Super. It was fantastic. Yeah, super. Um, and I love her. Uh, there's a video, another YouTube video, which is Takamitsu Pats, that on a company. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's pretty stunning, mm -hmm. you know, the stuff that she she does. I really enjoy Tina's Haydn Hummel. I love her Hummel. But that CD is a really good CD, I think. Yeah. It's one of those things where you listen to it and you, it's not, oh, I'm going to try to be different because everybody plays these the same. It's like, here's a, a really well thought out interpretation that doesn't break new ground, but it's just perfect. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the product, the sound and the nuances and the, it's just, just sort of how those tunes go, I think. Yeah. <clears throat> so you've done solo recitals. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When you prepare those and you're choosing repertoire, let's say you're going to play the Haydn. Everybody knows it. Right. That's, what can I do other than just to play it beautifully? What can I bring to this? Do you think about that or is it... There are really three different ways to play the Haydn Concerto. One is how you have to play it for an audition, mm -hmm. which means you don't want to <laughs> you don't want to do anything that's really that a string player or a woodwind player think is weird stylistically. Mm -hmm. So you're in the box. That's the smallest box. And then if you're playing with an orchestra, you still have to relate to all the string players and the woodwind players and a conductor. But you have a little more space, and then if you're doing it on a recital, you can take some more risks with it. And certainly, in terms of writing a cadenza that might stretch <laughs> stretch the harmonic language a little bit and, and, and such. I think when you listen to Winton's Hummel and hear how fast he plays the last movement, it's okay. We can't stretch that any further because I and he does five note turn. How does I don't know how he does that. And it's just like okay, yeah, you know, yeah. It's like listening to Sergei on yeah. certain things. Yeah. How do you do that? Yeah, when I program recitals, I try not to play too many things like Haydn, to be honest, or too many of the works that, and this sounds wrong, but that aren't student recitals, because everybody needs to know these pieces, which is why mm -hmm. they're on student recitals, but I try to look for new works and had some stuff written for me, or mm -hmm. transcriptions, or finding, I, I really went on a kick of finding all the obscure Paris conservatory pieces that no one plays. And there's a lot of those works out there. Mm -hmm. And they're all like beautiful and they're, mm -hmm. they're doable. They're eight minutes long each and they're, mm -hmm. you can toss a couple of those or put three of them in a set and they're not too hard on the face. Mm -hmm. They've got some technique in them, but they're all little works of art. And, and mm -hmm. I love exposing folks to rep that they don't know on recitals, mm -hmm. but it's not like going and doing recitals at a community center or for community concert where you can't push the envelope. You want to play a Haydn and you want to play right. like a, a standard piccolo piece and you want to do stuff that is more familiar and doesn't challenge so much. Most mm -hmm. of the time if I'm doing stuff, people are either they're coming for a reason or it's at a university where you can do that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's talk about those pieces that were written for you. Uh -huh. Who, who's written for you? I did. There's a piece by Ronaldo Ochoa who lives in Houston, a really good composer. 
and it's called Stills in Black and White, which is just a it's a through composed piece for trumpet and piano, and it has some techniques like the pianist is inside the piano doing stuff, but it's <laughs> it's not strictly twelve tone, but it's based on like cells, mm-hmm. you know, for construction. And it was meant to be. I said, "Hey, Ron, how about writing something that's sort of like Peter Maxwell Davies Sonata? It's just mm. not quite as hard." And and he came up with that, and then he expanded that into being a full concerto, and he orchestrated it. So I've played that with orchestra as well. But I, I like the first movement by itself as a as a standalone. Bert Truax wrote a concerto for me. Mm-hmm. Not Bert, but he was. You know the name, yeah. The second trumpet in in Dallas for a while. Another sort of good composer, and as a trumpet, they were both trumpet players, and so they knew how to write trumpet mm-hmm. music and that piece I've, has gotten a lot of mileage for me i've done it with concert bands and with orchestra mm-hmm. and if you want to take it out it actually has an optional organ part at the end <laughs> get it as big as you want and then i did an uh, album of electroacoustic music with a composer named meg bowles who writes what used to be called new age and now we call electroacoustic music mm-hmm. which was a really fun project and a bunch of those tunes are possible to play live mm-hmm. some of them aren't but a good half a dozen of them off the disc are are possible to play live with with your dvd player and, and some mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so also a composer named morgan powell wrote uh, a really cool sonata that i do well i should know that name but i yeah the, no relation he, i'm he sure taught but it, um yeah he taught at university of illinois he was a trombone player but a, com- mm-hmm. a jazz trombone player but on the composition faculty so it's a piece that goes through a, a, a bunch of themes and variations and morphings of this tune into sort of different jazz styles. It's a combination of legit with some jazz influences in it. It's what, you know, used to be called Third Stream when back in the 70s. So it's been, I I probably need to do some more commissioning, but yeah, that's taking care of that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Charles Reskin. Yeah. I'd taken out his first, his trumpet sonata on a bunch of recitals a few years ago. And then he wrote a, his second sonata is for me. And I actually haven't had a chance to play it live yet. Mm-hmm. It's a couple of years old. It's published by Beam. Mm-hmm. Are these pieces, are they playable by anybody? Oh, yeah. or is yeah, they're, it... all, they're all pretty accessible. Yeah. Yeah. And I asked that because like when I was talking to Jim Stevenson yesterday, it's the Rex Dream concertos, the ones they wrote for Rex Richardson. Yeah. It's, it's like stuff that Vizzuti writes. Well, <laughs> you're going yeah, to corner the market, right? Specific to, to <laughs> a couple of players. Yeah, yeah. Now these pieces are they have their challenges, but they're certainly doable. Mm-hmm. I'm a sucker for a good tune. I want to have something to latch on to, even if it's just a little two or three note. Well, uh, and that's thing. that's one of the reasons. That's what drew me to Charles Reskin's first sonata, and why I did it. The first movement is pretty hefty. He's a trumpet player as well. He's actually the. He's now the president of the Musicians Union in Miami. <laughs> mm. Talk about a bad gig. Right. But, um, <laughs> but the first movement is, it's in sonata form. It's got, the first theme is, nice lyrical theme. The second theme is pretty edgy and, and harmonically mm-hmm. and rhythmically. But the second movement is like a jazz ballad on flugel. It's really good. Mm. Mm-hmm. And the last movement is sort of like Wild West meets... I don't know. It has like some syncopated stuff. Yeah, yeah. It has a theme that sounds like Magnificent Seven. Or something Bruce Broughton would write. Yeah, a little bit like that. And he's a really thoughtful composer. It has a lot of... It's tuneful. I hear you talk about all these pieces, and it answers this question, I think. You're sitting in an orchestra, here you are, principal trumpet, and you're going to play Beethoven, you're going to play Mahler and Brahms and Sibelius, 
but it sounds like you also embrace the newer pieces that come through as well. It's, if it isn't a living art form, then we're about done. And there's a lot of really good stuff being written today. We've done uh, a lot of collaborations with Mason Bates. I don't know if you've ever done any mm -hmm. of his music. He plays... Um, oh, yes. Uh, Mothership? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so he has actually come and played the, synth, the, the pad parts and the sampling yeah. parts with us. So we've done a bunch of his stuff. Nico Muley, we've he's done a bunch of music for us. Of course, Jennifer Higdon lives in Philly, so we do a lot mm. of her music. Mm -hmm. But there's a there's a, there's a lot of stuff out there. We had uh, the last three years, our composer in residence was uh, Hannibal Lokumbe. I don't know if you know him at all. He's a jazz a jazz trumpet player. We, all these mm -hmm. trumpet players write music. I don't know, but he wrote <laughs> these. They're big pieces for full orchestra, and choir, and sometimes. The first one he wrote, he played like in a jazz combo in the front and mm -hmm. just really stuff that breaks down barriers that makes it these collaborative things are, are super cool. Mm -hmm. I think one of the most interesting pieces I've done uh, recently was with the orchestra. We broke into there were nine of us that were called to do something for the Fringe Festival in Philly. So you knew it was going to be funky. And then the rest of the orchestra was doing like new composer readings and stuff that week. Mm -hmm. And this was a piece by Heinar Goebbels, who needs a better last name. Yeah. <laughs> and he's an interesting dude because he started off in the 70s in the punk rock scene and then <laughs> has become like a composer and he does art installations and he's a visual artist as well. He does all of this stuff, which is super interesting. And this piece was for nine instrumentalists, nine early instrument people playing at Baroque pitch. And it was based on a book. And so it, you had to have nine women and nine men playing it because all the women had it, women only were narrating and they read mm -hmm. uh, excerpts from the book. And, and this piece, it was just so amazing. And he was there and did the lighting for it. So there was mm -hmm. no overhead lighting. It was lamps and, and there was sampler in it as well. It mm -hmm. was it melded like early music, new music and postmodern stuff. And it was super amazing. And it ended with a five-minute trumpet soliloquy with everybody playing prayer bowls, everybody else in the group. Oh, wow. And the trumpet played this. What was the audience reaction? Well, they loved it because they were at the Fringe Festival. Oh, sure. So there's the expectation, right. <laughs> it was in a 200-seat black box theater, and we had six rehearsals for a 75-minute piece, which is not the orchestral norm. And we, right. we, used, that. we used it. Yeah. A good conductor named Anutali conducted it. She's uh, yeah. she's uh, Finnish, but it was it was just so cool to to do something that was hyper challenging. Yeah. While at the same time being like incredibly moving, it just the emotional content is there, and that's when you put piece is a good piece, and if it's going to endure, you mm -hmm. know, are people going to play this music? Some of the stuff that just comes off as being intellectual probably isn't going to get a lot of playing. Mm -hmm. Stuff that reaches people on, a, on an emotional level, that's what the art form is. Mm -hmm. So, sure, it's easier in a way to just play another Beethoven 5, but because I know the notes. <laughs> but there's something really special about learning new rep, yeah. working with composers, working with people who are creating, because it's what's going to keep the art form alive. Well, you talk about those. Students, I, my Curtis students, they all play new, a new piece on their graduation recital. They have oh. a new piece. 
because we need that. We need we need to keep the art form alive. And I tell them innovation is on your backs, guys. You got to make it work. You talk about barriers. That's one way to push those back or even break them down is to keep innovating and not to do the 80 piece orchestra all the time is to do. Yeah. And part of it is that. And part of it is just understanding the the need to reinvent what a symphony orchestra is, what we look like, who we are, what audiences we reach, what kind of repertoire we play. And I'm not suggesting for a second that we throw away Beethoven and, oh, no. and Mozart and Brahms and, and Bach and Shostakovich and Sibelius and all, Stravinsky and all this music that is proven over the course of history to be memorable <laughs> and those mountains of human creation because... Mahler's symphony, that's something pretty special. Yeah. Strauss Alpine symphony, that's something pretty special. Yeah. You don't hear that. Schoenberg Girl Leader, that's something special too. But that is, it's like having a steady diet of potatoes and steak. It's great to have that, but not every day. Not for breakfast. Yeah. And so reaching out to different communities, doing stuff that, other, that resonates with other people, and then understanding the the need for a community message from an orchestra, how we're going to relate to our communities, how we're going to start to reach out to folks who aren't our current audiences. And that's a lot of that is going to come. Some of it's going to come through repertoire. Most of it's going to come from us being out there, pounding the pavement, working with kids, getting kids who don't listen to classical music to learn an instrument. Yeah. Then their parents have to drag them to a concert. Yeah. <laughs> and give them cheap tickets. So they'll come. Yeah. Yeah. And I found that when people experience the art form, a lot of folks respond to it and they come back. But it's getting people in the door and relating to, to our communities. Yeah. Not just relying on the same audiences to come every night. And I love the idea of having people on the stage. Let's say, see the New York Orchestra Halls. In fact, you mentioned the, the Hamburg. Overflowing. Yeah. And what an amazing hall. The audience is practically, it surrounds. It's like they're on stage with you. And I think. Yeah, uh, our hall is like that too in Philly. We've got choral seats behind, but when there's no chorus, there's. Mm -hmm. They become the conductor's circle or something. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what they call it. Yeah. But there's people like literally looking over my shoulder. Yeah. I, but I love that. It's, again, it takes that fourth wall away it allows people to get in and i love dress rehearsal having local kids come in and sit on the stage and it's, feel it's that power the power of the music yeah. yeah and i know that the couple of years ago there were there was all this stuff circulating oh we need to ditch the white tie and tails it's not about a white tie and tails it's about what's your message mm -hmm. who are you reaching how are you doing it mm -hmm. are people put off by formal wear do you really <laughs> care what i'm wearing as long as i'm covering up <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a cheap and easy answer, mm. and I don't mm -hmm. think it's a meaningful one. It's totemism. Mm -hmm. We have to actually, we have to do things that that matter. And yeah, where doesn't really matter. So yeah, I'd be fine, by the way, to ditch the tails. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, but changing it into a suit or wearing a, a black shirt and black pants or having a designer make a uniform, a who knows, whatever, it's not going to save the art form. Yeah. Yeah. It's hearing people like you talk about this, a great spokesperson for this kind of innovation or change. It's not really innovation, though, is it? It's just simply recognizing it's, it's what's always what been. works. It's been what's always been, though. Stravinsky wrote the Rite of Spring. That was new, right? Beethoven symphonies were shocking in the day. 
barely it was shocking in the day there's always been this innovation why we feel like we have to be stuck only in the music of the masters yeah it's daunting if, if somebody came to you and said you need to write a piece and it's got to be better than the Brahms mm. symphony <laughs> what are you going to do <laughs> you're going you're gonna to toss the toss, oh I lost my pencil oh no manuscript paper sorry it doesn't have to compete mm -hmm. it just has to be creative and it's yeah. got to speak to people yeah right after the George Floyd stuff during the protests, we were supposed to do an online gala. And obviously it was the wrong time to do that. Mm -hmm. And so we did, the orchestra did what's now going to become a regular broadcast, which they brought Winton in. And because we have a great relationship with Winton, we work with him a lot. We recorded mm -hmm. his violin concerto. Mm -hmm. He had a Grammy last year. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and one of the things he spoke about, he played a little and then spoke and it was so beautiful and eloquent and man just props to him for everything he does but he talked about he said Brahms isn't famous because he's German and Ellington's not famous because he's black we're just talking about great music here mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that really resonates and there's there is great music being written today by all sorts of people we just have to find it and do it. <laughs> yeah. And then learn to play it well. Yeah, right. Well, and then play it well. Yeah. That's, that's one of the issues with symphony orchestras, of course, is, you know, the current schedule where you have three or four rehearsals and, and then you do your set of concerts. That sometimes is way too many <laughs> if you're mm -hmm. playing a Beethoven symphony with a conductor who's not so good. A conductor who brings something new, then that those rehearsals go and you're really accomplishing a lot. If it's just regurgitating a symphony, then you don't need that many. But if you're playing new music, oh my goodness, yeah. I tried mm -hmm. to get the orchestra to program when it was time for a concerto for me. I tried to get them to do Nobody Knows the Trouble I See, the Zimmerman piece, because it's such a great piece. It was written in 1950, mm -hmm. but it's still politically correct, like relevant today. Mm -hmm. But the group is a jazz band with it. It's a string orchestra. And then it's a full sax section, electric guitar, Hammond organ, mm. B3. And they were like, too expensive, too many subs, and you're going to need a pile of rehearsal time for a 15-minute piece. We can't afford it. Wow. So Short-sighted. No, it, it, in hindsight, yeah, because Yannick, our music director, wanted to build a gospel program around it and then bring in a gospel choir and do some stuff. And in... It just got nixed for budget reasons, but it was a beautiful program, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and one that would would have really been good to have done to show a different side of what we can do and to reach yeah. out to different audiences. Yeah, but it didn't happen, and I did Lindbergh's Achbach Bunka instead, which is a really cool new piece, which was also for the chamber orchestra. Ulla Edward Antonsen's recording of that is. Is crazy, by the mm -hmm. way, if you want to listen to it. It's a great piece, but the third movement is like Turkish jazz. It's, it's cool. <laughs> that took six full months of work to learn. <laughs> it was a hard piece, yeah. I thought. But also very tuneful. Mm -hmm. And I thought really, it, the audiences liked it. Critic thought it was too tuneful. Mm -hmm. But let's talk a little bit about your teaching. Switch gears just a little bit. You teach undergrads and grads. And you've got yep. the full spectrum, right? Yep. Up to doctoral students. Mm -hmm. Who comes to you? Are there, are there people who are just like, they're totally focused on being an orchestral player or 
they come to you raw and ready to be molded. I'm lucky, first of all, because the last year I taught at four different places, but my two regulars now are Curtis and Northwestern. Mm-hmm. So we get we get great students. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. what's the secret to being a good teacher? Have great students. Yeah. So at Curtis, a lot of the folks who come in are looking to be orchestral players. Mm-hmm. But not all. I have a student now who named James Vaughn who I hear him play and I'm like, yeah, that's is that the next Reinhold or the next Hokan? Because mm. he's going to be... He's going to be a junior, and this past year he won the Bozan competition as a sophomore. Wow. And he's just, it's lights out. But he's only taken one professional audition, and he made the finals. It was principal in Louisville. He didn't get the job, but he played four rounds. So he could be an orchestral player as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I hope he's a soloist, because he's got such a great voice on the instrument, Nick, uh, his mm-hmm. gifts. But mostly those, the rest of the students are... are who are also pretty ridiculous, are looking for orchestral sorts of things. But I, mm-hmm. I, I always do a heavy dose of solo of playing because solos are tons harder than the orchestral rep, mm-hmm. and it gets your box to be bigger. If, mm-hmm. you're, if you play Leonore every day, all day, or opening to pictures, this is your box. You play, right. you play Desenclo, and it's like this big, or... <laughs> or Tomasi or and it's it's a different scene at Northwestern yeah all the grad students masters and doctoral students are are looking to be orchestral players mm-hmm. for sure mm-hmm. the undergrads we have a mix about 40% of the undergrad studio are usually dual degree majors we actually <laughs> have some triple majors which I can't even imagine Northwestern <laughs> it's an Ivy League school as far as the difficulty yeah. of the courses yeah and and so we get these kids who are some of whom are like, want to be an orchestral player? I'm just doing music. And then some of them are like, I have so many interests and I'm pretty brilliant. And they are. <laughs> and so they're doing a whole bunch of stuff. And I had this one this one student, Jen, who was a triple major, music ed and j- journalism. Uh-huh. And her goal is to be a band director. And she wants to be a college band director at some point, probably come back and get a, a master's in conducting or something. Mm-hmm. And... You should have heard her play the trumpet. It was so amazing. Yeah. But she's got a. She just finished a student teaching, and she's gonna. She's got a job in down in Texas in the fall. I think in somewhere around Houston. So she's gonna have the big program. Yeah. And she's gonna be a great teacher because she's got amazing ears and great score reading, and she's. It's like the brains on these kids. So. Some of them are, are strictly looking for that orchestral stuff, and some are just trying to figure out what they're going to do. I had another triple major who just graduated, and he turned down a Fulbright to take a loose fellowship, which I didn't know about, but it's this... I think there's 18 of them that are given out every year, and they go and spend 18 months in Asia partnering with companies. And he did... Uh, he basically is designing instruments, trumpets. Wow. And he can play. He plays a lot. And he's going to be playing these instruments. But Con Selmer has hired him to, I guess, Steinway. owns Con Selmer. I don't know. But anyway, he's working with Bach as a consultant. And he's 21 years old. Wow. You know, on instrument <laughs> design stuff. Because he does all the computer, he does all the CAD stuff. And some of his stuff, it looks bizarre. Yeah. The stuff plays. He was bringing in uh, these... He was doing 3D printed mutes and bringing them in, you know, to the studio. Here, here's a new mute, and it was like, oh, "Wow, that's awesome! How do you do that?" So, 
it's a little different there because some people, everybody's got like a different, mm-hmm. a different life course. Mm-hmm. You know, some of them are, uh, some of them end up really wanting to do orchestral trumpet, and others end up following a different passion. But yeah. one one recent grad is in law school. You know, he said, "You know what the average." Starting salary of someone graduating Northwestern Law is. I said no. He goes, a hundred and ninety thousand a year. <laughs> like, oh my gosh! Hey, can I write your letter of recommendation? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I, I'm in the wrong business for sure. Yeah, another one of my recent grads. I'm writing actually. My my later today, I have to write her her med school letter of recommendation. She's going to be a great doctor, mm-hmm. and she'll still play. And she had great jobs too. My gosh, could play the heck out of the trumpet. Yeah. Do you ever think you would enjoy teaching? Not as much. It's a passion right now. Mm-hmm. It's, if I had to pick one versus the other, probably wouldn't be on stage. Wow. Because yeah. I've done so much of that. And it's not that I don't enjoy every minute of playing. I do. Mm-hmm. But there's something about mentoring and, and working with these folks and showing them what's possible, what they can do. It's just mm-hmm. so moving. It's so cool. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love every minute of it. Mm-hmm. There is just something really very special about opening this up. And I, I really think of myself as much a mentor as a teacher because it doesn't matter to me if these kids find a different thing they want to do. They're still taking these lessons. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite, you shouldn't have favorite students, but one of my favorite students. Yeah. <laughs> or kids either, Harvard right? Yeah. <laughs> and did a master's at Cleveland Institute. And one day I get a phone call as she's graduating Cleveland and saying, can I talk to you? I said, yeah, of course. And she went through the story and basically she was looking for permission to, to quit. And she got into two vet schools. Her dad had a vet practice, large animal vet practice, and she wanted to be a vet. Wow. And I said, do you think you wasted these years of your life? She said, no, they're who I am. Mm. I learned so much and it defines who I am, this education I got. And it's going to help me in everything I do. And, and you, you think about that and you go, okay, she's not going to have the big symphony orchestra job, although she probably could have. She could really play. Mm-hmm. But had just I don't know, for whatever reason, just the business didn't appeal to her. But wanting to, to be with those animals and be a part of the family business, I think, appealed to her more. And mm-hmm. like, go for it. And you know, she's totally happy. Another student who's a public defender. You know? mm. That's God's work, man. <laughs> right? You know, helping people who can't afford a good lawyer, being a good lawyer for somebody and helping them through mm. the system when they, can, mm. they don't have the funds to do it. That is just like the coolest thing ever. Mm-hmm. And that student plays in a brass band and is gigging in, in churches and still playing up a storm, mm-hmm. but doing this other thing. I don't feel that in any way is is a failure I, I think it's a huge success helping yeah. some helping somebody find what they want to do that they can be happy doing I think it's, it's super cool and help yeah. to find have people find out who they are yeah it's me I don't know maybe I'm just getting sappy no not at all and, and I, love I, ask... I, love, I love it you know and I'm still I was talking with Ed Carroll I was getting some asking and because of the pandemic, I wanted to learn some new, crazy, unaccompanied stuff. So I was like, Eddie, because he's like the king of that stuff. He knows mm-hmm. all of it. I said, I, mean, I have these things, but what else? And he started like 
listing tunes and I'm like making making an order for some music. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he says, I'm so tired of teaching all that French. Can't say it. Because you posted someone. Stuff. Yeah. How's that? And I'm like, but I still love all that French stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I could teach I could teach those concertos and those solo those other solo pieces all day long every day and I still love them. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, I this I've really enjoyed music and life. Yeah. It's like I said, this has never been a gearhead podcast, although well, I can't remember who it was. We ended up talking all kinds of details on mouthpieces and such. I was going to say, you didn't ask me what mouthpiece I play. No, and I'm still not going to. I appreciate that. Yeah, until I'm off the air, and then I'm going to ask you about all your equipment. <laughs> oh, I have to say... I play Yamaha. You did put a you did put a plug in earlier for Yamaha, and that's a little okay. Bit, a little bit. Yeah, well, I'm a Shires guy, so there, there you go. Yeah, no, they've been they're so great to work for. I gotta say. Yeah, I'll have to plan a trip up your way and give you a call and say, hey, show me the best places to eat in Philadelphia. Okay, there you go. I have yeah. a friend in Indy. Maybe I'll get that down that way. Oh, anytime. Seriously. Sounds great. Take care. Okay. See you. Uh-huh. Bye bye. Hey, thanks for listening to today's interview. I'd appreciate it if you would leave a comment and a rating at Apple Podcasts. And thank you for listening on whatever platform you're listening on. And we'll see you next time. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Tune in next week for another great interview. And one last reminder that you can help support this podcast by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com slash studiohfl. Your support would be most appreciated. And another special thanks to Messina Covers, the Eastman Music Company, and Pickett Blackburn for their support of this podcast. Thanks again. Now, go practice. <laughs>